0: Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you here. Glad to see those of you who actually made it this morning after the Mexico trip. You have proven you love God. So congratulations. (laughs) Our key scripture this morning comes from Ephesians chapter two. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there today. We'll be reading first from Ephesians chapter two, verses one through nine. expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. This is a wonderful passage isn't it? It's so encouraging and it speaks some things that we need to hear every single day. We are saved by what? by grace and not by our works. There is nothing that we can do to earn the salvation that we have from God. There is nothing we can do to be good enough. There is no sort of cosmic score sheet that we can fill up that will earn us the grace that God offers to us. In fact, Paul takes the language to go so far as to say that before we knew Jesus, we were dead. In our transgressions, but by having faith in Jesus Christ, we now have life. A life that we could not have had on our own. And he makes this point very, very clearly. Our salvation is not our doing. It is God's doing. And it is what God does for us. However, let's look at James chapter 2. If you want to flip over there, you're welcome to. And here is what the writer says in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So we are saved by grace through faith. And yet our faith without deeds or works is dead. That's kind of an interesting addition to the conversation, isn't it? We, are, we were dead and God made us alive through our faith in him, and yet our faith is not alive if it is not backed up by our actions. And we have struggled, Christianity has struggled with these two ideas forever. And I think it's in part because we are a one-way-or-the-other kind of people. Well, if I'm saved by grace, then works don't matter, right? Because I can't earn it at all. But yeah, but do you even have faith at all if you're not doing something that reflects that faith? Well, yeah, but I'll do things that reflect my faith, but I'm still going to mess up and fail. Well, then is that an excuse for you to not do things and back and forth and back and forth it goes? Because we are a one way or the other kind of a people. Either we are saved completely by grace or we aren't. Either our actions determine our salvation or they don't. And we have a hard time finding our way to the middle of this discussion. But if we look back at Ephesians chapter 2 for just one more moment, we see something that at least in most of the studies I have read about Ephesians, maybe we skip over this part. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, I mean these are verses that I memorized as a kid. And again here's what it says. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. But listen to verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If we become God's people, then we become people who do God things. And if we do God things, we are going to be doing good things for the world around us. And while we may be uncomfortable with it, as we look at the teachings of Jesus, there is hardly a story about judgment that does not include God judging us for what we have done. Those stories really don't exist. We are saved By grace through faith, not by our works. And yet, grace is supposed to generate something inside of us. It is supposed to generate God things in us. And if our faith in that grace is real, it will be shown through what we do. And so I don't know what side of the fence you're on this morning. I don't know what you most need to be reminded of. Do you need to know that you will never be good enough, that you can never earn the grace that God has for you, but that God offers it to you anyway, knowing you will never be good enough? Or do you need to be convicted that just saying you believe in Jesus and just calling out his name is not enough because your faith must have both hands and feet? Because ultimately, church, salvation is not about grace or good deeds. It is about both. Uh, So we are, again, uh, coming to the end of our study on the Sermon on the Mount this week uh, and next week, our last two weeks to cover this material um, and so as we talked about last last week, Jesus is wanting to close out this uh, this section of teaching with some warnings. He's given us blessings in the beginning about, um, you know, blessed are the meek. And he's, he's blessed all these people that have these different characteristics. He's encouraged us uh, to take on the ethic of the kingdom and, and to become different kinds of people. And so now he has uh, some hard words for us. And so last week he talked about... Uh, The wide and narrow gates, the wide road and the narrow path. And um, so so just to remind you really quick of where Jesus went with this, um, there are only two paths that you can be on. There are not 10, there are not 50, there are really, there are only two. Um, One path leads to life and the other path leads to death. And the, the path that leads to death is the wide road. It's the easy road. As, as I like to put it, it's the road that we walk without having to make any effort to walk it. We can roll out of bed in the morning and be on the easy road and be on the wide path. The narrow path, however, is the path that leads to life. And Jesus says that only a few will find it. But if we follow Jesus, he will lead us down that path and we can walk on the path to life. This week we find another warning, and um, it's sort of the unique passage that we're going to look at today, and uh, the reason why it is especially challenging for me to teach this passage to you is that this passage is basically talking about me. Now, I know we say that a lot in the sense of, well, you know, this, this passage is really speaking to me, but no, really, this passage is talking about me. Um, you see, I am your minister, uh, you count on me to be your teacher, uh, a spiritual guide, you count on me to stand up and talk to you each week, uh, some of you have entrusted me with your children, and so these verses strike me in a particular way that honestly they wouldn't necessarily strike you. So I was debating this week over how to teach them and what I should say about these things when these verses are talking about me. You'll get a better picture once we read them. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, reading verses 15 through 23. <clears throat> and here is what Jesus says. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Now, before you jump to any conclusions and you think, well, Bryce thinks he's a false prophet. That's not where we're going quite with that this morning. But when I read these verses, I recognize something that the rest of you While it applies to you, it applies to me in a very distinct way. And so I want to share some of that with you this morning. But before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the words of Jesus, which have been challenging to us. Um, God, you have challenged us to evaluate how we live our lives, what we do, why we do it. You have challenged us to change our hearts and not just our actions. And Father, this morning as we look at this passage, will you give us eyes and ears to see and hear what you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, you may know this, uh, so just allow me to pretend you know, like I'm giving you something new. But here you go. The Bible, when it was written, was actually not divided up into chapters. Okay, It was all just one long thing. And so when you look at your Bible... If you look, if you have it open to this passage and you look down, you'll see that this section is divided into two different sections. And that most often is how we have approached this section, is that the top part is speaking about one thing and the bottom part is speaking about another. But that's really not the case. The, the first thing we need to see about these two particular sections of scripture is that they are actually directed to the same grouping of people. Um but though it is directed to the same grouping of people, there are two problems that they might have which differentiate the two sections of Scripture. So, the group that Jesus is talking to here are um, the teachers, the leaders, the prophets, those who would stand up and speak to the people on behalf of God. Uh, either they are given that position or they claim that position for themselves. And as Jesus uh, points out here, there are two main ways that they are falling short. Now, the first way that they are falling short is that they may be spreading a false message. They are false prophets. In other words, the things that they are speaking are not the things that God would actually have them speak. The second and perhaps even more scary thing, particularly for me, is that they may actually be doing great things in the name of Jesus. They may be performing miracles, driving out demons, doing all of these very charismatic and God-centered things, but in fact, when it comes down to who they are, they are actually evil and God says, Jesus says, he does not know them. So let's look at this first grouping, okay, this first grouping of people. Uh, And here's what we see. A false prophet, in this case, as we see it in the first part, their primary characteristic is that he or she is a deceiver. They are telling lies about God. And it's here where uh, one of the things I love about this passage so much is that there are a lot of visual images that Jesus brings up for us here. You know, So he doesn't just say someone is bad, or he doesn't just say someone is good, where he doesn't just say this is what good looks like or this is what bad looks like. Instead, he gives us a metaphor. And the metaphor that he gives us in this first part is especially vivid, okay? Um, Because what does he say a false prophet is? They come to you in what? Sheep's clothing. So they look like a sheep, but inside they are what? I'm sorry, they're what? What kind of wolf? A ferocious, a ravenous wolf. That's an important adjective here. Okay, and Jesus says that on, on purpose. He puts this, this, these particular words together on purpose. And so here's how we have to think about these people. They are putting on the clothing that will make them look like one of the sheep. But inside, what are they? They're a ferocious wolf. So it leads us to the question, right? Well, why is the ferocious wolf putting on the clothing to look like the sheep when they could just pick off the strays? Right? So what can a ferocious wolf who looks like a sheep, and Mike Smith can tell you sheep are not all that smart, right? If a ferocious wolf dresses like a sheep, acts like a sheep, talks like a sheep, what can the ferocious wolf then do? It doesn't have to pick off the strays. It can get right to the middle of the flock and do whatever it wants to do. Right? And if the other sheep do not recognize it as a wolf because it is a sheep, then they are basically lost. They are in danger, whether they know they're in danger or not. So this is the metaphor that Jesus throws out there for these people. They are individuals who are consciously intent on using or even harming other people who are followers of Jesus Christ to their own ends. Uh, They have an agenda, and that agenda is something other than the spreading of the gospel, the growth of the kingdom, and the creation of disciples. There is something in this for them. Okay? That's why they are disguising themselves and putting themselves into this position. So here's something that we need to understand. If, if, you, have, if you envision in your mind for a second, right, and you put God on top of a circle and us on the bottom of the circle. Here is the basic understanding in Israel of how things worked. Okay? So God is at the top, and his message comes down to the people through who? Well, through the prophet, through the one who speaks on behalf of God. And then, from the people, the offering goes back up to God through who? Through the priests, right? Who helped them offer sacrifice. So this is... You know, the spiritual circle of life within Judaism. And so this term "prophet" is also important, because what it says and this is a scary thing it, it really is a scary thing. This person, this false prophet, intentionally puts themselves between God and his people and speaks for God to the people, but he's really, he or she is really only in it for his or herself. So they may look the part, but deep down they are not. This might mean in this context that they are preaching some sort of different message or some sort of different gospel. It could mean that they're actually changing what it is that Jesus would say or what it is that God wants them to hear. But the one thing that we know, and we're going to get to this more in just a minute, so hold your horses. But the one thing we know about them is though they may act in a certain way, when you look at their lives, their lives do not reflect relationship with God. Okay? Now, to the second failure. And this one, like I said, troubles me a little bit more uh, than the first. I mean, we don't like the first one. Because this person is intentionally inserting themselves, deceiving people, looking out for themselves. But this next one is scary for an entirely different reason. Um, In this case, the false prophet um, confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they actually uh, petition God in that way. And on top of that, they are prophesying on behalf of God. They have spoken For him to the people. And it doesn't say in this passage that the message they're giving is false. We need to recognize that. They are also driving out demons in the name of Jesus. Which is using the power of God to do that. Okay. Um, and, And they're doing these different sort of miracle workers. But when Jesus looks at them, he says, you've done all of these different things um but there is one thing that is still missing from you and that is even though you have done all these things through the power of god you do not you are an evil doer and what does jesus say he does not what he does not know them so that's a pretty hmm. There is something that is so, uh, we, we've talked a lot, okay, maybe I should put one thought together instead of trying to do three. <laughs> let, me, let me finish the sentence here. Uh, we have talked a lot about uh, Matthew chapter 25, for example, and we've talked about the parable of the sheep and the goats. And in the parable of the sheep and the goats, you get to the end, and there's one group that lived their lives in the way they were supposed to, and there was another group that didn't. And it's pretty obvious who belongs to Jesus in the end and who doesn't. But the problem and the scary thing is, is that the group who didn't live their lives for Jesus seem to not know that they didn't live their lives for Jesus. And we have a similar situation here in Matthew chapter 7, where these people seem to be doing God things for the community. They are teaching they're healing, they're doing miracles, and yet what do they seem to not know? They seem to not know how far away from God they actually are. They don't have that sense of awareness. And so while the first group is characterized by being, you know, these, this group is characterized by being deceivers, this second group is characterized by being deceived themselves they they think that they've got it but they don't they think that they're close but they're not and so they're missing their major mistake i guess is that they're missing two kind of elements and and the first one and the most interesting one is this jesus does not know them and he never has think about that for a second these are people teaching, preaching, again, doing miracles in the name of Jesus. And Jesus does not know them. Which indicates that in, these, in this, these people, these false prophets, in their relationship with God, everything that they have done, all their time and effort and energy has been put into the outward portrayal of their faith to those around them. But there is nothing inside, in the personal element of faith, that has drawn them or close to God and has brought God close to them, and this is most characterized by the fact that Jesus calls them evildoers. Let's just look at that term literally. What does an evil doer do? Evil. Okay, M- meaning that. When they are out doing and acting and being just on their own, are they doing good things or are they doing bad things? They're doing evil. They are evil doers. So this suggests that these false prophets, again, are about themselves, what they do in public, but they don't realize how far apart they are from God in their own personal lives. And if you look back, not all of you have been here with us through the whole time on the Sermon on the Mount. It's only been like three years. So <laughs> if you don't remember what we've talked about, I extend grace to you this morning. Um, but Jesus has reduced the life down to, to doing God's will and to loving God and to loving others. And. So while these people, interestingly enough, may be excelling in what we would consider to be the difficult, the gift things of God, they are totally falling apart when it comes to simply loving God and loving other people. They are not enacting that in their lives. And to put it even more simply, followers of Jesus follow Jesus and his teachings and those who do not follow jesus are not his followers and everything that jesus has described to us in matthew 5 6 and 7 is all about lifestyle it's all about what you do it's all about the decisions you make it's all about how you treat other people how you view yourself how you view god and when you look back on those things you see that the will of god is far more is most often about works of compassion than it is about some sort of charismatic display of how awesome God is through you. Do, do you see that? It's more about like how you are with people. Than it is about how you can change people through something that you do. So in both of these cases, we see something that is pretty eye opening. Uh, at least to, to me. And that is this. In both cases, they own Jesus, but Jesus disowns them. They speak as though they honor God, and yet Jesus dishonors them. They say that they work for him, and yet Jesus separates himself from them. And we learn this one thing. It is at the very least possible to work for Jesus and yet not live under him. It is possible to do things for Jesus and for Jesus to never know you. How do you feel about that? Like that's, that's hard. And, and here's what it boils down to. They, they believe that they know Jesus, but apparently they never gave Jesus a chance to know them. It's interesting what Jesus says there. You know, He says what? I never knew you. He doesn't say, you never knew me. Because do they know him? Well, on some level, yes. They understand who he is. But he never got the opportunity to know them, which says that Jesus... Never got the opportunity to actually be in their hearts, in their lives, and to form them into something that he wanted them to be. Instead, what they became as Christian leaders was all of their own design, whether they were aware of it or not, whether they knew it or not. And when it comes down to the end, guess what? It doesn't matter if you knew it or not. It doesn't matter if you try it really hard it doesn't matter if you missed this thing either Jesus knows you or he doesn't so how can you tell if someone falls into this category how can you tell if someone is a false prophet false teacher false leader based on what we see here and Jesus makes it very simple for us which I'm I'm grateful for that um he challenges us to be fruit inspectors. We are to be fruit inspectors. And fruit is explained here in this passage in these sort of two analogies. Uh, First, grapes don't grow on thorn bushes and figs don't emerge from thistles. Meaning what? The kind of fruit that is produced can only be produced by whatever kind of tree that is. And so if you look at the fruit, you will be able to tell what kind of tree it is. It is not some other kind of tree. It is this tree because, look, it has an orange on it, which means it's an orange tree. It doesn't mean it's an apple tree. And second, good trees produce good fruit and bad trees produce bad fruit. Um, good trees don't produce bad fruit. And bad trees don't produce good fruit. So if the tree is giving you fruit that is never good, what can you determine about the tree? It's certainly not good for giving you fruit. So the question becomes then, what is it good for? Firewood is about right. Firewood is about right. And it's common sense. It's what, it's what I love about Jesus so many times in so many of his teachings. He just he, he says things in such a way that there's no way to circumvent what it is that he's saying. Because this is common sense. The, the kind of fruit a tree produces tells what kind of fruit it is. So a tree that, is, that represents God or one of Jesus' disciples... It will produce fruit of the kingdom. And furthermore, the quality of the fruit that is produced will tell you if the tree is healthy or not. Or if it is sick. Or if there is something wrong somewhere with the tree. The nature of the fruit reveals the nature of the tree. And good trees are tended to, they're pruned at times because that helps them grow more. But they are taken care of so they can continue to produce fruit. And bad trees are cut down and burned. That is what is done with them. Now, to the really important question that we have to answer still, which is this. Well, what is the fruit? What is the fruit that we are looking for? And within the context that Jesus is speaking of, there is only one conclusion. The fruit is doing God's will in your life. Um, And Jesus, again, I'm not going to get into this a whole lot, okay? But Jesus, in these chapters, 5 through 7, has given us a pretty thorough explanation of what doing God's will looks like, okay? And perhaps you're even now thinking of all the challenging things that Jesus has said in terms of hate, in terms of adultery, in terms of murder, in terms of anger, in terms of... um, you know, forfeiting our own rights in terms of not judging other people, in terms of forgiving other people, in terms of all these different things. Like, Jesus is describing something here when he talks through all of these different things. So he's given us an explanation. So if you're wondering what specifically are the fruit that we're supposed to be looking for, we'll go back and read 5 through 7 again. Because it, it gives you as thorough of a picture as you're going to see of what the insides of this person looks like and what kind of fruit they're going to produce. So what is the bottom line then and what is he telling his disciples to do? So if they hear someone making a claim to speak for God, they are to do two things. One, they are to listen to what the person says and to determine whether the message that they are giving is consistent with the message that Jesus has given. And secondly, they are to look at that person's life and to see if that person is living out the will of God in their personal life. If they are speaking a message that is consistent with the gospel and with what Jesus is teaching, and if their life does reflect the fact that they've heard all these things and they are living them out, then they may be speaking for God. But if those things are not there, then they could be false prophets. Therefore, as one commentator put it, the false prophet is the gifted leader who does not do the will of God in the ordinary elements of life. The false prophet is the preacher, the teacher, the pastor, or the priest who has converted the splendor of a gospel calling into a job well done, but whose moral life is indistinguishable from the common person of this world. The false prophet here is the leader who exercises the gifts of the Spirit with a flourish, but who flounders at the personal level of following Jesus. It's a pretty good description. It's a pretty good description. Now, we see here a pretty clear application that this applies to them, it applies to all of us, but keep in mind Jesus is talking about this certain kind of people. And, and the pretty clear application is this. Um, what you do matters. And we are going to be judged to some degree based on what we have done with our lives. Okay, I'm not going to stand here and tell you to what degree you're going to be judged and where grace takes over for you and what Jesus will overlook and what he won't because that's not my job to do that. But it's true that Jesus gives grace, absolutely. And it's true that we cannot earn our salvation. Also correct, But while both of those things are true, Jesus makes it clear in this passage, and actually in many others, that what we do with our lives really, really matters. And you can tell who is actually with God, not based on what they say, but based on what they do. Based on who they are. Based on the fruit that they produce. Period. This is not up for discussion with Jesus. Well, Jesus to what extent? Jesus to what level? Jesus to what? No. You can tell if someone is with God based on their fruit. This really matters to him. And if someone is not living out the life that Jesus has described, they may think that they know God, but the problem is that God doesn't know them. And how different of a way to approach our relationship with God is that for us? We spend so much time trying to know God. Trying to draw close to God. Trying to understand God. But in the end, what does Jesus say? Do I know you? Have you let me in to the most secret compartments of your life? Have I changed the way that you think? Have I changed the way that you feel? Because frankly, Anyone can say Christian things. Any of you could get up here and read a Bible passage and talk about it and talk about how great Jesus is. Any of you could do that. The challenge is has Jesus come into our lives and does he know us? Frederick Bruner uh, put it this way, and this is what he says, and this is, I want you to hear this because Jesus is grace filled. And Jesus is the embodiment of God's love. But here's what he says. A Jesus without judgment, a Jesus who does not care about the content of people's lives, does not exist. Scott McKnight sums it up this way. He says, The Bible teaches that our final destiny is determined by works. We may be saved by faith, but we are judged by works. Every judgment seen in the Bible is a judgment by works. Okay, that's a lot to process all in one moment, yes? Because remember, what kind of people are we? Well, it either has to be this way or this way. And it can't be both. So what are you saying? Are you saying that we work our way to heaven? No, we are saved by grace, but we are judged by works. It's not about earning something. We are so single-minded sometimes that we have to take something that is beautiful and complex and change it into something that we like better. And humanity throughout time has shown that we do a really good job of changing grace, something that is free to us, into something that we have to earn. We have done a good job of withholding grace from people that we don't think have earned it. We have done a good job of removing grace from people who have offended or hurt us in some way. So as much as we may hate to admit it, we fall in imminent danger at every moment of making grace something that we earn. So the real danger here, I think, is the grace itself. So letting it be something that still covers over all of our mistakes, that still gives us the freedom that we need, that still gives us all of that, while we still strive every day to be the person that Jesus calls us to be. Because it is not one way or the other. And just because Jesus judges by works, it doesn't mean that he's not going to go to the cross a few chapters later. He's still going there. And he's still going to be resurrected. And he knows all of that. And guess what? He still cares what you do with your life. Even though he knows his blood is going to cover all of your sin. We are saved by Christ, but we are saved into a lifestyle. Into a way of living. The way, uh, you know, the most simple term for it is discipleship. The practice of following Jesus every day in our lives. The practice of making decisions with Jesus in mind. The practice of asking ourselves, what would God have me do in this moment? The practice of recognizing the times where we are not doing that and working to correct those things in our own hearts. And if we pay careful attention, we see that grace and our actions work together throughout the New Testament story. Grace is a free gift we cannot earn. We can never do enough, no matter how hard we try. But the salvation that we receive through Jesus Christ is supposed to lead us to transformation. From an old life to a new life. From, you know, the old is gone, the new has come. And in Jesus' mind, in Paul's mind, we will be so affected by the grace that we receive that our lives will be continually formed and changed by the teachings of Jesus. We will become more and more like him. So I want you to hear me, that no one is saved by what they do, but everyone is judged by works because works are the inevitable life of the one who surrenders to, trusts in, and follows Jesus Christ. After all, he cannot be your Lord if he does not lead you. So, what should you do if you think you have identified a false prophet? This is the most interesting question I think I'm going to bring up this morning. What do you do when you think you have identified a false prophet? What does Jesus tell you to do in that passage? Nothing. Interesting, isn't it? So our impulse would be, if we recognize a false prophet, what should we do? Well, we should yank that sheepskin off. And then all the sheep should gang up on the wolf and run them out of the pen. Right? But Jesus doesn't tell us to do that. He doesn't tell us to run the false prophet out of town. He tells us to pay attention so that we can know if someone is a false prophet, we're not. So what does that mean? Uh, Shouldn't they be exposed? Shouldn't we remove them? And I'm actually, I have to be honest with you. I've, I've, I've worked with churches for a really long time, and I'm grateful that God, Jesus, doesn't give us instruction on what to do with them within this context. Because here's what I think is true about us. We would take that instruction and we would turn it into a weapon against people. Determining if someone is actually a false prophet is a challenging task. For example, um, what if they simply have a different conclusion about something than you do? Does that mean their message is false? (laughs) You say no, but many times that has been the determination of whether someone is with God or without God. Even looking at fruit is challenging, um, and it should be. You know, Jesus explains this plainly, but we can't undersell how difficult it is what, that, what he's actually telling us to do. For example, who decides what is an acceptable application of the Sermon on the Mount in someone else's life? Who decides the appropriate level of compassion and care for others? And furthermore, who determines uh, what a teacher can or cannot have and still be godly? There have been discussions throughout time as to what kind of a house a minister can have, what kind of a car they should drive, what kind of clothes they should wear, whether they can have tattoos, all kinds of different things. And just to push it one step further, what if you just don't like someone? What if your personalities clash? Does that mean one of you is with God and the other isn't? It's complex a little bit, isn't it? Trying to determine these things. And furthermore, there's a profound danger when we start determining what other people's intentions are in any given situation. They did this to hurt me. They did this because they don't like me. They did this because they don't actually care about God, but I do. That leads us down a profoundly destructive road that we have to avoid. Jesus has already told us something about being judgmental, right? Which is, you're going to have a great deal of trouble Helping people with the things that are in their eye because of the giant piece of wood that's in your eye. It is going to make your vision faulty. And so the first thing you are supposed to do is to walk yourself through the redemptive process. And only once you have walked yourself through the redemptive process are you going to be qualified in any way, shape, or form to help someone else remove the tiny thing that's in their eye. So he's already told us this. And he's also told us that if we have a problem with someone, what are we to do? We are to go directly to that person. And if going directly to that person doesn't work, what are we then to do? Get some people that can help and then go to that person again. The whole object of all of these things is to bring reconciliation to between two people if that reconciliation is possible. But something I want you to consider very quickly is that I think in part Jesus doesn't tell us what to do because we have to be checked before we go down this road. There have to be some sort of checks in place or the body of Christ will keep dividing itself over and over and over again based on differences of opinion, interpretation, personality, any number of different things. And that is so true. I had a conversation with someone the other day about whether the Church of Christ uh, is actually autonomous. It's a fascinating discussion. If any of you would like to have it with me, come talk to me sometime. Now, the reason that I suggest uh, care and that we need to consider this is that, again, uh, I am your minister. And from the time uh, I was 19, I have put myself in the position of trying to help people in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I read this passage, and it brings some things to mind that I want to share with you. And I want to be very clear about something before I say these things. Um, I am not sharing this with you so you can answer any of these questions for me. I am not sharing them with you so that you can come up and tell me how great you think I am. Although, put it in writing, if that's what you think. I also am not complaining. And I... I want you to be—I want to be clear about that, okay? That I'm not complaining or anything about that. I just want you to have a window for a second into my head, and I'm sorry—you know—it's a messy place in there. Um, and the first thing is this: uh, I know myself very well. Um, I know myself better now than I did five years ago, and I know what my faults are. I know what mistakes I make, and I fight a battle every single day of my life against sin, against my own personal failings, against the things that make me uniquely messed up as I am. And at the same time, while I know that is true about me, I feel a certain amount of pressure and I always have to be above reproach, which is a biblical idea, actually that you should be able to look at me and see my life and see what I do and not see major causes for concern. So everything in my life over the past 21 years, from how I look to how I treat others, to what I spend money on, to what I eat or what I drink, um, to whether I am friendly enough, to any number of other things is all on display and up for interpretation for the community that I'm working with. And if I do or say anything that someone does not agree with, if I fail in some way, I open myself up to harsh criticism and the disappointing of others. And this is not something that I take lightly or, again, that I'm complaining about. Instead, this has been a lifelong struggle for me that finally drove me to the edge of a mental and emotional cliff where the weight of trying to live up to other people's expectations became too much for me to bear. And I wanted to continue to minister and to teach in the preach, but I wasn't sure if I could anymore feeling this way about myself and knowing that I had so much weakness inside of me. So you might think that this passage would scare me, this invitation to look at my life and what I do. and But uh, in some ways it, it does, because here's the thing, opening yourself up to Jesus in any way like this is always scary. But here's what I realized, and that is this. Jesus, in this passage, is not threatening me. In this passage, if you see yourself, he's not threatening you either. I believe that Jesus has called me for better or for worse into this life that I live, a life that has brought me great frustration, but beyond that has brought me more joy than I could ever describe or explain to you. The lives that I have been allowed to be involved with, the people that I love so very much, there, I would not give that up for anything. The opportunity To have been able to sit down with people and to share them with them, Jesus Christ, is something that I love. And so I think that what Jesus wants me to see from the sermon and maybe from this passage more than anything else is not how I fail to be something, but instead he wants me to see the life that he calls me to. And this life that Jesus is calling me to, the life he's calling you to through this passage, is a life that is a lifelong pursuit. That in every moment of every day, we are going to face new opportunities to love or to be compassionate or to be kind or to be merciful in ways we might not have dreamed of the day before. Because my God, you see, is a loving God and he is a forgiving God and he has shown great mercy and grace To me, and He has given my life purpose and meaning. And I can say, and I can say without hesitation that God knows everything that is wrong with me, and He still loves me, even though those things exist. And the last thing Jesus wants for me to do is read this passage and to think that I can't be who He wants me to be. Because what is the complaint he has in the end? That he doesn't know them. They never open themselves up to them. So God expects me to fight against these things that are my weaknesses with his power, the power of the Holy Spirit living inside me. He wants me to trust that not only has he forgiven me, that he wants to lead me on to something that is bigger and better than what I could have on my own. And he wants... Maybe on top of all of that, for me to be a part of something special. Something that is uniquely a product of Him. He wants me to love people like He loves them. He wants me to spread this message of forgiveness that I have received to others who have hurting. And He wants me, in my own unique way, to love, give, and serve in a deep way that only I can. Because... I am the only one who has been messed up in the way that I have and been formed in the way that I have and been changed in the way that I have. And the same is true for you. You are your own unique mess of failure and redemption. You are your own unique mess of failure and redemption. And there is no one on the face of this earth who can speak of Jesus Christ like you can. No one. So Jesus wants me to have confidence that as I seek him and bend my life to his shaping that he will give me the words to say that when I see the things that I'm not doing, that I wouldn't become stubborn or give up, but that I would do everything within my power to bring that part of my life under the control of Jesus Christ. Because, see, Jesus knows that I'm not going to do everything correctly. I'm going to keep making mistakes, and I have bad news for you. I'm going to disappoint you. More than once. But in spite of that, every day, I will try to be a better follower of Jesus Christ. And if there is some way in my life that I am not living that, I want Jesus to show me. I want Him to show me. I want to know that that can become the next passion of my heart to change that place. And so this reminds me, lastly, coming to the conclusion of something really important. This is from 1 Thessalonians verses 2 through 4. <clears throat> you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God... We dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. This is perhaps the greatest challenge of my life, It's one that I struggle with every single day. But one that I need to remember, and that is this. I don't live my life for you. I don't live it for my wife or my children, my parents, my siblings. I am challenged in every moment to live my life for God. And therefore, I need to live in constant, the constant tension of transformation. The constant weight of becoming. That I will never go tired, complacent, blind, or deaf to the way that God is wanting to lead me. And I trust that as I lean on God, that He will give me what I need. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your grace. We are grateful for your love and mercy which overcomes all of our failings. We are grateful for the way, God, that you know us completely and you still choose to love us. But God, the challenge that you lay in front of us is for us to make ourselves known to you. To not hold back. To not be in this for ourselves. To not keep pieces of who we are away from you. But God, that in our pursuit to become more and more the kinds of people that you describe through the words of Jesus, that God, we would be known to you. Not just for our failings, but for the way that we have been shaped and formed. God, you have made each of us unique failures who are uniquely redeemed. And may that be the story that we take going forward. God, I pray the scary prayer of exposing to each of us the things that we are holding back. And may that not build in us some sense of failure, Father, but may it build in us a sense of possibility of what we can become, God, if we give these parts of our lives over to you. And Father, I pray that as we do that, we will find the empowering that you promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in a wonderful way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.